0: Hello, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker-Riemann Centre here at UCL and today I'm speaking with Lisa Lowe. Lisa is Samuel Knight Professor of American Studies and Professor of Ethnicity, Race and Migration and the Director of American Studies Graduate Studies at Yale University. She's an interdisciplinary scholar whose work is concerned with the analysis of race, immigration, capitalism and colonialism and she's the author of several important books. Firstly, Critical terrains: French and British Orientalisms, which was published in 1991 with Cornell. Then Immigrant Acts on Asian American Cultural Politics, which was published by Duke in 96. And most recently, The Intimacies of Four Continents, which was published in 2015. And that's the book we're really going to get stuck into today. So thanks so much for joining me today, Lisa. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. My pleasure.
0: So, the first thing really I wanted to ask was about the intimacies of four continents, about how and why you came to write the book, perhaps how it emerged out of your earlier work as well, particularly here thinking about the brilliant book, Immigrant Acts.
1: Well, I've always been interested in the importance of racialized labor to the emergence of modern capitalism, colonialism, and imperial expansion, as well as the endurance of race as a shifting mark of social difference in the present. So my first book that you mentioned addressed gender and class in French and British colonialisms. And the second book, Immigrant Acts, looked at Asian immigration to the US and the role of the state through citizenship, immigration, and labor laws in racializing successive Asian groups as non-citizen labor for the development of US capitalism as you might know, a 1790 statute restricted citizenship to white property-owning men, uh, thus excluding Asian immigrants as well as many other groups, other non-white peoples. And Asians were actually excluded from naturalized citizenship until the mid-20th century, which made the 19th century Chinese workers in particular a crucial workforce in mining, agriculture, railroad, construction, and so forth, in the expansion of the U.S. economy as it moved after the abolition of slavery from plantation slavery in the U.S. south, westward, across the continent, and into industrialization and manufacture. So my most recent book, The Intimacies of Four Continents, really began with this curiosity about the post-1840 global Asian migration to the U.S., as I was used to thinking about, but also to the Caribbean, the Indian Ocean, Latin America, and within Southeast Asia and throughout Asia itself. So I began the book with this curiosity about the role of Asian and particularly Chinese labor migration and what this labor migration had played in the global emergence of the world system. And how Asians figured in this international racial division of labor. So, for example, I was curious if non-citizen unfree labor in the U.S. was connected to unfree coolie labor across the globe in this period. And, in fact, they were very much a part of the same global migrations as, as people like Ho Jung and Walton Luklai and Lisa Yun and others have, have all studied So I was asking, how were Chinese and South Asian laborers in relation to or separated from enslaved African labor? And in what ways were these workers recruited as part of the settler colonial seizure of indigenous lands and waterways and and other resources? And, you know, some of the questions that preoccupied someone like Manu Karuka I don't know if you know his book, Empire's Tracks. It's a brilliant book on how the railroad companies in the western U.S. used Chinese workers to build the transcontinental railroad, but also how this affected Lakota, Cheyenne, Pawnee, and other indigenous peoples. So these were my questions. And the first document I worked with was this 1803 so-called secret memorandum from the British Colonial Office to the chairman of the Court of Directors of the East India Company, which I discuss in the first couple chapters of the book. So this was written in 1803, just following the Haitian Revolution, in which the Colonial Office laid the groundwork for this plan to import Chinese indentured labors into Trinidad. And they say quite explicitly that this stems from this desire to expand Sugar production and mostly to suppress potential black slave rebellions. So, we see from this document that the plan to import Chinese labor was a colonial imagination about how they might supplement or replace African slavery. And, you know, while our dominant history credits English abolitionists like Wilberforce for the abolition of slavery, it's clear that British abolition of the slave trade in 1807 and slavery in the empire in 1834 were parts of this plan to expand profits, to move beyond the so-called rigidity, you know, what David Altus calls the rigidity of the slave economy, but also primarily to, as a kind of counterinsurgency, to avoid uh, or suppress the possibility of slave rebellion and slave revolts. So we see how even in this early period, the Chinese were instrumentally used as a kind of buffer group in this 19th century colonial fantasy of bringing in a a free yet racialized and coerced labouring group, you know, to sort of be between the colonial British and and the African enslaved. But this is at a time when freedom was really foreclosed to both the enslaved and the indentured under colonialism. So as Britain moved from this slavery-based plantation production to international trade in manufactured goods, the Chinese so-called coolie, as they were called, thus appears in the colonial archive as the figure who stands in for transitional labor forms required by this new division of labor. So those were the, the connections that brought me to this third project out of the study of Asian American and Asian immigrant labor to the U.S.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating book. And I think, you know, the method and bringing together the various archives. And, and there's a lot in the title itself, Intimacies of Four Continents. I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, one of the things, one of the main interventions the book makes is into debates about the origins of liberalism. And, and you argue and show. How liberalism emerges in the context of colonialism, slavery, and race making. I mean, just for people who haven't necessarily thought about this question, why, why is that intervention into how we understand liberalism so important? And I think often, you know, for laypersons, we struggle to understand exactly how to define liberalism and, and liberals. And thinking here of how, you know, to be a liberal can either be a kind of pejorative term levelled from the left or it can be a sort of term of, Of pride of one's own progressive values for others. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what your text offers here very broadly in clarifying or expanding or totally exploding how we understand the emergence of liberalism and what the liberal is.
1: Well, thank you for that question. And of course, also thank you for the reminder that some people listening may not have read the book or, you know, may not be involved in some of these discussions about liberalism and and modernity and Colonialism and so forth. So, you know, I was focusing especially on the links between liberal political philosophy and its well known ideas of liberty, wage labor, free trade, and representative government, not as, you know, eternal ideas, but having emerged out of specific and very colonial circumstances. In particular, what I'm tracing is how these ideas emerge out of settler colonialism in the Americas the transatlantic slave trade and the, the expansion of imperial trades in China and India and setting up the colony in Hong Kong and, the, and in the Chinese treaty ports. So liberalism in this sense doesn't mean its contemporary meaning of the opposite of conservative, but actually the political, economic ideas of liberty as opposed to being governed by the will of a monarch or feudal aristocracy. So liberalism I'm thinking of as the political philosophy that really defines Western modernity. And I argue that the colonial relations of indigenous dispossession, enslaved labor, and Asian indenture were the conditions of possibility for the emergence of these classical ideas of citizenship, free labor, free trade, and representative government. But in a way, in the book, I say, you know, it could be considered a kind of unsettling genealogy of modern liberalism. I really argue that while liberal ideas promised freedom from enslavement and colonialism, it didn't actually bring an end to these forms of unfreedom. It instead became the means, it innovated the, the means for the expansion of global trade, global maritime trade, new forms of government and state criminalization, dispossession, and so forth. Um, so, liberal freedom uh, actually linked the transatlantic world of plantation slavery to this expansion of colonial trades and goods and people, and brokered emigration uh, in the Chinese treaty ports, um, and you know really ushered in the unprecedented imperial dominance of the British Empire by the end of the 19th century, and of course the succession of it by the United States in the 20th. So by modern liberalism, I mean really the branches of political philosophy that included the narrative of political emancipation through citizenship in the state, the promise of economic freedom in the development of wage labor and the exchange market, and then you know these modern definitions of civilization as the human person educated in aesthetic and national culture. But in addition, I'm also assembling what I call an archive of liberalism that isn't just these explicit political economic treatises, but also includes literary, cultural, and social genres of progress and individual freedom. I mean, in a way, I'm thinking about liberalism as this characteristic narrative of freedom overcoming enslavement, which we see in the political economic treatises, but also we see in novels and autobiography in historical narratives. And so I'm tracing it through varieties of liberal genres. What we see is that as these different genres define the human and, and narrate its struggle, its overcoming of unfreedom and its, its achieving of freedom, it's, it's universalizing these liberties to European man, but simultaneously differentiating peoples in the various colonies as less than human. So these ideas of reason, civilization, and freedom are continually dividing the human according to a, a coloniality of power or a colonial division of humanity is what I call it, affirming liberty for European man but subordinating the colonized and dispossessed whose labors and resources actually made possible those liberties. This isn't a, I mean, I'm not trying to argue in the book that liberalism is hypocritical, this argument that, well, liberalism espouses freedom, but it doesn't actually fulfill its promises. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying it's, it, I'm not making a biographical argument either that, oh, well, John Locke was a member of the Carolina colony, so how could he have actually believed in freedom, where John Stuart Mill worked for the British East India Company. I'm not making a biographical argument. I'm, I'm rather saying that these liberal principles of political emancipation, free wage labor, free trade, representative government were actually innovations that provided the normative reasons and arguments and structured the historical archive itself that permitted colonial settlement, permitted slavery, permitted indenture, and permitted this expansion of imperial trade. In many ways, I'm recasting liberal forms of political economy, culture, and government, and history, in order to interrogate our received knowledge and bring forward the the links between the different topics. So, for example, between transatlantic slavery Asian indenture, the opium trade, colonial government in Hong Kong, settler colonialism in the Americas, if we, if we see the links between these customarily separated histories, we can bring, bring forward what's been buried or disqualified or forgotten about the history of liberalism. In, in a certain way, this is, this is my methodology in the book to, to read across different customarily separated histories for the elisions, anxieties, bringing together unlike kinds of documents and genres and archives in order to suggest possible reconnections of what, what is forcibly disconnected.
0: That's great. I thought the discussion of John Stuart Mill in particular I learned a lot from. Maybe you could say a bit more about his kind of ideas about liberty as building on what you've already said because I think he's, you know, particularly in chapter four, which which we'll come more to actually in a second, you talk about John Stuart Mill his ideas about liberty, of course, his role in East India Company. And, you know, I suppose the ways in which his ideas about liberty also allowed for a contradiction of those who were not yet ready for government. And we see those, you know, not not yet uh, their required education, civilization. a lot of these terms that we know were at the heart of the colonial enterprise. But I think you show that in, in his work in a really careful way. And I really enjoyed that. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about kind of John Stuart Mill's ideas and just to maybe underline, draw out some some of those points you make about precisely not it only being a biographical question of contradictions between what someone does and what someone says, but actually that the, the ideas themselves contain all of those distinctions between those who are capable of government and capable of liberty and those who aren't.
1: We often think about Mill as the author of Unrepresentative Government and really the designer of our modern systems of, of liberal government and you know, the famous feminist and you know advocate of, of rights for women and so forth. But these ideas of, of liberal enfranchisement always were developed out of this, this developmental logic that there were some who were unfit for liberty For whom despotism was justified, and others uh, until they could be educated, and of course he has many writings on education, until they could be educated or civilized into being capable of self-government. So his ideas of representative government always granted the state a monopoly on force to maintain order and progress and to educate people for proper self-government. So while his work has become the normative political theory that rationalizes liberty as representative government, it also simultaneously argues that there should be representative government for some, but despotism will be necessary for others. So his work is such beautiful illustration of how liberal ideas of universal, quote-unquote, enfranchisement are precisely also embedded with ideas of colonial difference.
0: I mean, let's stick with chapter four a little bit, because I, as I said in in our conversations in advance of this one, you know, that was a chapter I gained a lot from, and I, and I will read and reread. There's so much we could draw out. It's a very rich chapter. This is the chapter titled The Ruses of Liberty. So... The chapter is set in the aftermath of the first opium war, which was a war from 1839 to 42, as the British were establishing the new crown colony of Hong Kong. And you write about how the criminal justice system, policing powers, vagrancy laws and contagious disease ordinances targeted poor Chinese migrants in Hong Kong. And that these processes of criminalization of those Chinese migrants basically then produced the surplus population of indentured or coolie laborers who were then moved around the empire to work and toil often, as you say, in the context of post-slavery and often in plantations or in other places around British empire, which, you know, reminded me of Amitav Ghosh's novel, The Sea of Poppies. And, you know, I couldn't help but think about all of the untold stories of these millions of people, indentured workers who moved or were moved from India and China in particular, throughout the 19th century, so many stories there must have been. And this chapter struck me in, in particular because of my own interests today uh, in the links between policing, criminalisation, labour, racism and migration and immigration control in particular. So I think it's a really helpful chapter actually for helping us to better historicise and situate our contemporary predicament and our contemporary age of borders where you know people are on the move and trade is more intense and global than ever, but some people's mobility, particularly racialised Groups is policed or hypervisible, or rather, perhaps the the regulation of their mobility is part of what racializes them. Even as employers in various places rely on their disposable and illegalized labor, which again is a big theme in, in immigrant acts. So so yeah, that's a slightly long detail, but maybe you could pick up some of that and talk more about this relationship between policing, criminalization, as I mentioned, the vagrancy acts, and, and, and production of that surplus labor, which then you know was uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of people moved around the world from South and East Asia to work within the empire?
1: Thank you so much for that question. You know, as I said, I am so interested in the durability of these colonial relations into the present. And I was continually, I wouldn't say surprised, but so interested in the ways in which there were these connections between what we, customarily considered part of neoliberalism today. Uh, you know, I found these processes and these dynamics at play in the first half of the 19th century as well. So, I mean, what we see in the establishment of the Crown Colony in Hong Kong, how we have this example of, of par excellence of how the colonial state uses laws policing the military and carcerality and and health ordinances as well, as you you just remembered, to maintain their colonial power, but also to serve capitalism. You know, it's it's a well-known history how Britain introduced opium to correct the trade imbalance with China. The British had become very attached to tea and silk and other luxury goods and had to pay dearly in gold and silver. To the Chinese and introduced opium as a good that they could import into China, which of course was you know, terribly addicting and also induced docility into a people, you know, very resistant to conquest and a geography very resistant to conquest. So, But what we see is that imperial power is a reactive formation. It's not necessarily a centralized plan imposed from the top, but it's always an anticipation of counterinsurgency, of the uprising of indigenous enslaved working people, and a counter-revolutionary force. So in a way, the chapter wants to ask You know, what if we center the the constant uprisings of people against rule rather than centering imperial power or the empire as the protagonist of history? And the episode of the establishment of Hong Kong, the, the colony in Hong Kong, tells us that, you know, imperial power is always reacting. It's, you know, it's attempting to somehow colonize China, even though it can't territorially. So it creates an entrepot in Hong Kong and opens up various treaty ports because it's just China's too vast and too complex for them to colonize in a traditional territorial way. And it innovates ideas of imperial trades in people, in goods, in order to accomplish this rule uh, vis-a-vis labor unrest and various forms of disruption from below. So I think this reactive modality or reactive logic of the state using policing, using carcerality is not about a monolithic imperial sovereignty, but, a, you know, what Dean Nelio would say, the unsustainability or the failure, the failing forward of empire. Um, Dean is looking at Hawaii, but I love that formulation of empire failing forward, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, it's, it's coming from a position of weakness, not necessarily strength. Or as Manu Karuka talks about it, he, he has an idea of counter-sovereignty, that the U.S. nation is a counter-sovereign state that's always not just anticipating, but recognizing yet disavowing indigenous sovereignty against which, you know, whose suppression it needs to exact in order to emerge as a nation. So, so those are some of the things that, that I found in examining the establishment of the Crown Colony in Hong Kong. It's also the case that the work on Hong Kong added this other dimension to the curiosity I I spoke of that that began the project, which was, you know, what are the connections between this mass exodus of Chinese labor and the emergence of a world system as it moves from one form of plantation slavery and territorial conquest to the late 19th century uh, form of um, the circulation of goods and people, the control of imperial sovereignty, executing its power over distances through movement, through a form of sovereignty that isn't about exclusively locking people up in one place, although it still continues to do that, of course in new and innovative ways but it also involves moving people around and determining what kinds of people what kinds of goods can be moved controlling them through uh, ports and borders and so so let me be clear that I'm not I'm not saying that there's a transition or a shift from an earlier form of territorial conquest and enclosure and seizure to only moving things around but rather that that this, this late 19th century and, and, and in a sense, you know, up until today, involves this canny combination and almost an, well, an opportunistic and pragmatic combination of both older forms of colonial uh, territorialism and conquest and enclosure with these newer forms of free trade, so-called free trade and circulation and movement.
0: I also want to move now to a more recent chapter that you wrote, which was the afterword to the Revolutionary Feminisms book, which is a wonderful edited collection, mostly of interviews with key revolutionary feminists of the last few decades, put together by Brenna Bandar and Rafif Ziada. And in the afterword, you talk about abolition feminism building on some of the interviews throughout the book. I wanted to kind of ask if what you see perhaps as some of the links between your arguments in the Intimacies of Four Continents and Contemporary Theories and Politics and Debates Around Abolition?
1: What a wonderful question. Um, I was so pleased when Brenna and Rafif asked me to write the afterword. I was very honored. It has such amazing figures in it. I mean, Angela Davis and Ruth Gilmore, Himani Banerjee, Avtar Brahe. Gail Lewis, and many others, Sylvia Federici. In fact, there were a series of book launches, and I was so pleased I got to be in the one with Sylvia Federici and Gail Lewis (laughs) and Gary Kinsman. But I suppose, you know, the vision of abolition, well, let me tie this a little bit to the book, since we've been talking about the book. In the fifth chapter to the intimacies of four continents, I spend some time discussing C.L.R. James and W.E.B. Du Bois, and particularly their relationship to Marxism and the ways in which each of them struggles as a Black diaspora Marxist with the imperative that Fanon made, which was that you always need to stretch Marxism when you're analyzing racial colonial situations. And so both of them express what what I might call a kind of ambivalence about Marxism, both adhering to it, dialectical teleology, its universalisms, a notion of the revolutionary working subject, and so forth. But at the same time, you know, in order to put colonial slavery at the center, to make the Black worker the revolutionary subject of a transformative history. So what you find in abolition feminism is that these abolition feminists are not restricted to the universalism's and the rigidities that James and Du Bois were. And though Sylvia Federici and Angela Davis and Ruth Gilmore and so forth, humanity energy, they all take Marxism very seriously, but they always consider an intersection of struggles and multiple scales of colonial dispossession, mm-hmm. enslavement, extraction, patriarchy. They all believe that cr- crises across the globe are interconnected yet differentiated both within and across nation states, and that feminisms must be black, indigenous, Marxist, anti-colonial, and diasporic, that there is no single unitary subject woman, for example, or the worker that can be separated from conditions of racial capitalism, colonialism, racism, and empire. So they're, they're all in different ways and have spent their lifetimes on social critiques that are structured, in Stuart Hall's words, structured in dominance by a mul- multiplicity of conditions, all of which affect female bodied and female identified peoples, but peoples everywhere, and that, that we, we can't just struggle for one subject. I mean, I think the important thing I wanted to draw out of my afterword is that, and of course I'm I'm building here on the the wonderful work and the wonderful pieces by Ruthie Gilmore and Angela Davis and Avery Gordon contained in the volume, that abolition feminism is intersectional, of course, as I've just said, but it's also not about destroying only policing prisons and colonial enclosure, as it is sometimes parodied by the right. It's rather aimed at the elimination of the social order that produces policing and carcerality as a so-called quote-unquote solution. And abolition feminism emphasizes that it's a program of creating new social relations, which requires a very precise social ima- imaginary that's not bounded by the nation state or nationalists, current nationalist terms or the capitalist terms either for envisioning the global. So it's not merely about putting an end to something. But but forging what does not yet exist. So, you know, for example, in the U.S. this this past year, well, there have been ongoing Black Lives Matter, defund the police uprisings also across university campuses, wide activism to defund or remove and abolish campus police. On university campuses and some of these rubrics I think have been you know quite brilliant University of Chicago students have a have a rubric care not cops UCLA is divest and invest and in a sense they're naming that abolition is not simply about abolishing the police it's creating new conditions of mutual aid care dependency and relation that would be necessary in order to abolish the police so it's an affirmative and not merely a negative politics.
0: I think that's a wonderful way to round off the conversation, a hopeful way and an inspired way to round off what's been a really lovely conversation. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Lisa.
1: Yes, you know, it's been a really challenging 15 <laughs> to 18 months that are, from which we have not yet exited. Mm. So I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to share some of these ideas. And I and I hope that the, the connections with, Our current moment in which, you know, COVID has laid bare and exacerbated so many already existing Mm. social and economic divides. I hope that the connection with, you know, these earlier periods of of colonialism and empire are evident and it might help us understand the persistence of of colonial pasts in the present.
0: Certainly, that's how I read the book. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Roman Centre, find us at UCL.ac.uk forward slash racism-racialization
0: or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore sprc.